We're going to turn again this morning to Philippians chapter 2 and we're going to read once more the first 11 verses. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 and when I read this passage I think of what is written in the book of Exodus and I think of God's words to Moses when he stood at the burning bush and God said to him the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. And of course I confess when we read this passage that's what it feels like before the Lord. This is a tremendous portion of scripture. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. Let's hear the word of God. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill ye my joy that ye be like minded having the same love being of one accord of one mind let nothing be done through strife or vain glory but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves look not every man at his own things but every man also in the things of others Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. We know that the Lord is stamped with his own approval and blessing, this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now my text this morning is taken from Philippians chapter 2 and the verse 8. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And today again, as our theme, we're considering the example of Jesus Christ in his humiliation and death. And I want you to remember once again, probably for the last time in this series of messages, the context of these verses, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. Why are they here in the Bible? And remember the Apostle Paul is writing to address the problems that are inside the Philippian church. The church has a problem of disunity. Certain women are at loggerheads with each other. They're not speaking. Daggers are drawn. And of course you know the way saying that blood's thicker than water. And other people in the family circles are affected. And it's spilled over into the fellowship. And there's discord there. And there's disharmony in the house of God. And it's not a good testimony for those looking on from the outside. So 
How does Paul deal with this problem? Remember, he's in prison. He's hundreds of miles away. He can't physically be there. So in writing this letter, he directs them in chapter 2 to consider the example of Jesus Christ in his humiliation and death. And these words, Philippians 2, uh, 5 to 11, were penned to counter the problem of people not being able to get along with each other. And in order to promote true growth and true humility and true harmony, he, he is saying to them individually, he is saying to the church collectively, you must have the mind of Christ. You, you must model yourself in Christ. You, you must think of his incarnation. You must think of his humiliation. You must think of his death on the cross. Here's the best. Here's the only answer to the problem in the church of disharmony and disunity and discord. Let the believers, let the pastor, let the elders, the deacons, let, let them be possessed and gripped by the mind of Christ. Let, let them focus on his person and work, who he is and, and what he's like and what he has done and that will be the best remedy for dealing with the problems. Now we have already considered in this series of messages the example of Christ in his incarnation. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 who he is and I'm not going to reiterate um, that now in your presence. Listen again if you desire the sermon that's on the internet. Now last week we began to think about the example of Christ in his humiliation and death. And then we thought about the steps of his humiliation. And I would encourage you to look again at the words in verse 8. He humbled himself. Now, now how did he humble himself? I, I told you, if you look at the text, there's seven steps. Seven's the number of perfection. Here's perfect humility. Here's perfect humiliation. First of all, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The word robbery means not an exaggeration. Remember, he's God in the flesh. It wasn't a false claim. He made himself of no reputation. He, he took upon himself nothingness or the appearance of nothingness. He took upon him the form of a servant. The word servant means doulos, a, a slave. And was made in the likeness of man. He, 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 he came in the likeness of our sinful humanity. And being found in fashion as a man, he was a true man of flesh and blood. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. What sort of death? Even the death of the cross. Now here are the steps down of his humiliation. Here's the greatest steps of humiliation of all time. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of the everlasting father. God the son. The one who was in the bosom of the Father. The one who was co-equal with the Father. Co-eternal. Who coexisted with the Father. Who had all the essential attributes and nature of Godhood. He stooped from the crown room. To the crib room. He came from heaven to earth. He came from the very throne room. To the manger at Bethlehem. 
These words from the crown to the crib I've taken from thumbnail sketches of the late Dr. Paisley. And they summarize really for us the first stage of Christ's humiliation. Christ was God, is God. He wore the garments of the crown, the, the garments of the king. But in order to save sinners, what did he do? He must become man. He must be born a baby. He must be born among the cattle and led in a feeding trough for animals. Doesn't the Bible tell us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? You see, only God in flesh can save us because he became one of us. He must be born man as well as be God in order to be our mediator. And it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon that says for God to become a man is humiliation indeed. Remember, a man of real flesh and blood like as we are. What great condescension. Remember the Lord Jesus came to earth on a mission of mercy. He came for a specific purpose. And that was to, to die the death of the cross. God became a man. That's humiliation indeed. But he became more than that. The Bible tells us he became a worm. A no man. In order to die the horrible death of crucifixion on the cross. And to me that's amazing. That, that's mind boggling. Because that's more than humiliation. That, that's great condescension. We could also use, if I borrow the language from thumbnail sketches of Dr. Paisley, another phrase, from the crib to the cross. There's the second stage of his humiliation. His humiliation of himself as a real man of flesh and blood to die on the cross. Think of Christ. The road to the cross was a road that was all the way down. It was a life of constant humiliation. A life of penniless. Remember one time he said, show me a penny. A life of homelessness. The son of man of nowhere to lay his head. A life of companionlessness. He knew what was in man. He didn't trust himself to any man. Not even his disciples. Yet, he didn't flinch. He didn't retreat he didn't turn back the bible tells us that he set his face like a flint to go all the way to jerusalem and what was in jerusalem awaiting him here's the answer even the death of the cross the steps of his humiliation try and get them into your mind then we began to think about the substance of his humiliation last lord's day and i tried to explain uh in theological terms what the different phrases actually mean being in the form of God means he existed in the form of God the word form is the Greek word morphe and what a thing is of itself and Christ of course is of the essential nature of God what Jesus Christ is in his nature and essence character and attributes corresponds exactly to the same essence of God Jesus Christ existed equally and co-eternally as God in uh, 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 with the Father uh, and that's very important 
He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. As I've said, not an exaggeration, not a false claim. He made himself of no reputation. That means he, he, he made himself to be nothing. He, he, he appeared in the guise of nothingness, even though he was still God. And we remember we thought about the illustration of a king leaving the palace and going to live like a pauper among his people for a time, among his subjects. He took upon him the form of a servant. The word servant is slave. It's doulos. The lowest position to be in the Roman world was to be a slave. He didn't come looking like a great man. He didn't come as a, looking like a king or, or, or a prince or, or a mighty man. When he came into this world, he went as low as he could go. He took upon him the form of a servant, a slave, a doulos. He could go no lower. And so therefore we're comforted because no matter how low you go in earth, no matter how bad things are for you, your days of darkness and difficulty, no matter the pain and suffering that you're experiencing, Jesus Christ can identify with you. Because you can go no lower than him. And the Bible also tells us he was made in the likeness of men. He took upon him human nature. He was a real true man of flesh and blood. He knew what it was to be tired. He knew what it was to feel hungry. He knew what it was to cry. He knew what it was to work. I believe it. he knew what it was even to, to laugh. And yet he never sinned in thought and word and deed. And the Bible tells us here in being found in fashion as a man, he, he humbled himself. And I must confess, those three words, he humbled himself to me, they're, they're, they're mind-boggling. He, he, he chose voluntarily to, to veil his essential deity in human flesh. He, he, he chose to take the form of a slave. He, he chose to be in the likeness of flesh and blood. And he was never forced. He volunteered. Willingly he humbled himself. Graciously he humbled himself. Sacrificially he humbled himself. Practically and purposefully he humbled himself. And you see, the, the inference is, the implication is, you and I should learn to do the same. You see, if we have the mind of Christ in any given situation, remember the context, he humbled himself. And we could pray, Lord, help me to be like the Lord Jesus. And sometimes we sing, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus. All I ask is to be like him all through life's journey. To be like him, to be like him. And what was he like? Well, well he humbled himself. Doesn't the Bible say, humble yourself before the Lord? What does that mean? A life of self-denial. A life of self-sacrifice. Not, not inserting your rights, but put, putting God first. See, the Lord Jesus didn't insert his right as the one who's co-equal and co-exists and co-eternal with the Father. He humbled himself. And that's really where we left off last Lord's Day. So let's try and pick up there. Look, look at the next phrase. And became obedient unto death. Now, now think of the word obedient. And remember he's a slave. And we'll come back to that. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, we read these words, which I, I've been thinking about. Though he were a son, God the Son, Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, now go back to that 
thought about him being a slave. You think of the, the suffering of slaves in the Roman world. What rights did they have? They had none. And he took upon him the role of the slave. Of that, that is, of being in total and absolute submission to his heavenly father. That's why the father, of course, could speak of Christ. Behold, my servant. Was he not a son? Yes. But he was also the servant. The word behold means to look in him. To, to fix your mind in him. To, to fix your gaze in him. Isaiah 53 talks about my righteous servant. And I want you to remember when it says he was obedient unto death. He was not forced to death. He was not drugged or dragged. He was not reluctant. He, he was not persuaded against his will. You see, in his life, he lived with an eye to his heavenly father. Did he not say, I do always those things that please the father. The words that I speak to you. They're not my words. They're the words of the Father. The works that he did, they were the works of the Father. You see, he lived a life of perpetual and humble obedience to his Father. And not only in life, but also in death, because the Bible tells us here he was obedient unto death. Now, now let me just add this little bit. Some suppose that Christ, you see, was inferior to the Father. We have already said he's co-equal. He's co-eternal. He coexists. But but if you think of that scripture that says, and it was in, in Christ's um, uh, prayer, uh, my father is greater than I. Some people latch on to that and say, well, there's inferiority. But Christ was not inferior to the father regarding his divine nature. You see, it has nothing to do with any quality of nature or any quality of essence with the Father. He's co-equal, co-eternal, co-exists with the Father. But it's a reference to his office. What office? The office of a mediator. Remember, he had to become man. He had to go to the manger to be a mediator. And as mediator, he's coming to fulfill the role of a prophet to teach and tell us the way of salvation. As a priest to offer a sacrifice for us and to offer prayer for us. And as a king to, to bring us into subjection to himself and to subdue our and his enemies. And in that role as mediator, as he fulfilled the function of prophet and priest and king, he came as God's servant. And a servant has to do the will of his master. He, he's obliged to obey because of this role of submission. He's told what to do and he, he goes and does it. He doesn't argue with the master. He doesn't protest. You, you can imagine a, 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 a king and he's got a, a servant and he says to the servant, Now, um, I want you to go and fetch my slippers. Or, or I want you to put my dinner on the table. He doesn't say to the king, go and do it yourself. Why? Because he, he'd be afraid for his life. You see, it's a question of respect. It's a question of love. It's a question of authority. Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And out of respect, 
because of the Father's authority, because he had love for the Father, Christ adopted this role of being submissive, obedient unto death. He learned obedience, even though he was her son, by, by the things that he suffered. Didn't the Father say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased? Hear ye him. Every aspect, the Father was pleased. And look at this final phrase this morning. Even the death of the cross. Now I want you to think with me in the ten minutes that we have left. I want you to think of three things. Because this was really where we sort of tailed off last week. Think of the sight of the death of the cross. You see, during the Roman occupation of the land of Israel in the first century, thousands of criminals, now notice the word criminals, were put to death by crucifixion. They weren't shot. They weren't drowned. They weren't stoned to death, which is really the Jewish form of execution. They weren't hanged in the sense of a hanging. They were crucified. Death by crucifixion. Even the death of the cross means death by crucifixion. And I want you to think that this is a very horrible, painful, slow, agonizing way to die. This is really the worst form of death ever produced by humanity. A horrible form of capital punishment, a horrible form of, of, of uh, execution. And it speaks there of deep agony and pain. And here's the Lord Jesus. And the death of the Lord Jesus far exceeds any death by crucifixion ever witnessed. Out of all the thousands, running into tens of thousands, not one of those crucifixions ever came near or corresponds to the death that the Lord Jesus had to endure. He was obedient on the death. What form of death? Even the death of the cross. Remember the scripture says, they watched him there. Think of eyes in Christ, witnessing what's happening, listening to what is being said, observing the actions of the soldiers, the crowd, and all the events surrounding it. And they're taking in the details. And it's having an impact. The sight of the death of the cross. And if we get sight of that by faith. As one old hymn writer says. We lay prostrate at the feet of Christ. We'll be saying like Thomas. My Lord and my God. Words of course can't paint the picture. Let's think about the suffering of the death of the cross. I think of Christ leaving the upper room. He's got 11 disciples with him. Judas has already left to go and betray Christ. And he crosses the brook, Kidron, the very same brook that King David crossed a thousand years before when he fled from the rise of Absalom and Absalom's reign and rebellion. He fled in deep brokenness and deep humility. Where did Christ go to when he crossed the brook creature? And he went into a little garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's really an olive orchard and some of us have been there. And 
there, there's a, an olive press there, and of course the olives were gathered from the orchard, and then they were crushed in this press to, to exact the, the olive oil. And it was a place that Christ knew, and he often resorted to go there, and he went for prayer, no doubt, and for solitude, and to be in communion with his heavenly Father. It's about half a mile, I believe, from the center of Jerusalem. And there in that garden, remember, he prays in that garden. And the Bible tells us that he was in agony. And the Bible tells us that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. And it was there that he prayed, Father, if it, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but, but thine be done. And it wasn't that he was shirking from the cross. He was thinking about that suffering that he was facing at that exact moment. In the garden when the forces of hell and death were upon him. In the garden he prayed, now is my soul troubled. Now is mine hour come. He, 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 he knew the moment he set foot in the garden. He knew the, 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 the awful sufferings that awaiting him. He, he, he knew the pain. The physical pain. He, he knew the mental anguish. He, he knew about the shame and the insult. And it no doubt weighed heavy upon his soul. In Psalm 22, if you read Psalm 22, it talks about the pains of hell got hold upon me. Who did he take with him? Peter, James and John. Remember he left them a little while and went a stone's throw further, the Bible tells us. Why Peter? Peter, remember, is the one that boasted he would never betray him. Why James and John, were they the ones that were looking the place of preeminence? First place in the kingdom. He told them to pray. To watch and pray. And of course, we know what happened. They fell asleep. They were going to learn lessons that they needed to learn in life's journey. Because no matter how great and good we are, the reality is we're at best depraved sinners. And we need to recognize our sinfulness and bow the knee in humility and cry to God for his help and for his blessing. The Lord Jesus knew what pain awaited him. He, he, he knew all about the extremity of the sufferings that were about to fall upon him. And remember, there he was arrested. And he was brought before Annas and Caiaphas. And he was charged with blasphemy. And then he was sent uh, from there to um, Pontius Pilate. And then to Herod. And then back to Pilate. But just before he left um, the house of Caiaphas, they had no authority to carry out the death sentence. That was why they really sent him to Pontius Pilate. When he went to Pilate, Pilate fobbed them off to Herod. He didn't answer Herod a word. Do you know why? Because Herod had cut off the John the Baptist. God had stopped speaking to Herod. He was sent back to Pontius Pilate. What am I going to do with him? Pilate's thinking. So what they do is he gives them into the hands of the soldiers. They strip him naked. And they scourge him. That is, they, they no doubt tied his hands either to the front or to the back. And using a scourge, which is a leather thong with pieces of bone and metal, and they lashed into the flesh of Christ until they left his back, hideous looking like a ploughed field, running red with blood. Some people, when they were scourged, actually died. Many fainted. And you can read a description of the scourging by a man called Flavius Josephus. He's a, a faithful Roman historian, and he, he, he records it. They spit in his face. 
They strike him with a rod. They put a mock crown of thorns on his lovely brow. They, they get a purple robe and they, they put it around him. And they kneel down and they mock him. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And in that way, Pilate brings him out to the crowd. And says, Behold the man. What will I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ? Crucify him, the crowd says. Behold your king. We have no king but Caesar. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. What shall I do with him? Again, the cry is, crucify him. You think of him going through the streets of Jerusalem in that early morning. It's Passover. The streets are full. You, you could be in the land of Israel. Go to Jerusalem, five, six o'clock in the morning. And there's loads of people out there. He's carrying the cross beam. It's heavy. Remember, he, he's a blood-soaked man. And as he carries it part of the way, he, he, he no doubt has the strength to continue. So they grab the hold of Simon Cyrene and they make him carry it the rest of the way. They bring him to Calvary. They strip him naked again. They put a sign on, on the cross. This is the king of the Jews. They, they pull Christ's arms apart. Remember, the Bible talks in Psalm 22 that all my bones are out of joint. That, that is, the bones weren't broken, but they were disjointed. And they, 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 they take the, the, the rusty spikes and they kneel it into his hands. And they lift up his knees and they put the soles of his feet to the, 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 the tree. And they kneel his feet to the tree. And then they lift him up. And on either side there's two thieves. And of course the Bible tells us he was numbered with the transgressors. And at midday there's an eerie darkness surrounds Jerusalem. And for three hours... The sun refused to shine. There was a thick felt darkness. And there's the Lord Jesus suffering at the hands of wicked men. The Lord Jesus is suffering at the hands of the powers of hell and darkness. Doing their worst. He, he said in this occasion, the sorrows of hell got hold upon me. And he's also suffering at the hands of his heavenly father. He cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Think of it, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Suffering the wrath of a holy God. Poured out in his lovely son. On the cross. The sufferings of the cross. Physical, mental and emotional. And you know I haven't words to paint the picture. But I want you to think of this as we finish. I want you to think of the sacrifice of the cross. Even the death of the cross. Remember it's death by crucifixion. And I just want to say this as we finish. You see, there's a theological element to this, the death of the cross. The death on the cross was necessary to satisfy the justice and the wrath of a sin-hating God, the, the holiness of God, the wages of sin is death, the Bible tells us. That's why men die, because of sin. Christ's death was a sacrifice, a substitutionary death. A death of a sin bearer. He bore our sins in his own body in the tree. The death of a surety. He was paying the debt that we owed to the broken law. He was a sin offering. The wrath of God was poured out upon him. And as I've said, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There's also a circumstantial element to the cross. The cross was the way that Romans put criminals to death on a daily basis when they occupied Palestine. It was not new. It was a Roman invention. 
And there were thousands of criminals and lawbreakers put to death. And it was reserved for only criminals and lawbreakers. And for everyone who hung in the tree, as Deuteronomy tells us, there was a curse. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. Listen to what Galatians 3.13 says. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21.23 There was also a prophetical element. Do you know that in Psalm 22.16 the psalmist said a thousand years before Christ came they pierced my hands and my feet. Remember the spikes went into his hands and his feet. See, it was, it was foretelling of Calvary. A thousand years before. And the psalmist had no personal experience or knowledge of crucifixion. It says in Isaiah 53 and 12 that he was numbered with the transgressors. And there was two thieves, one on either side. And remember, the Bible tells us in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And, and what happened to the brazen serpent in the pole was a picture of what was going to happen to the Lord Jesus, God the Son, thousands of years in the future. See, there's a prophetical element here. There's a covenantal element here. Because even the death of the cross involved the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. The life of the flesh is in the blood. The shedding of blood is an emblem of life. And, and, and in relation to the covenant, the, the, the very word covenant means the cutting of a covenant. The, a covenant made, an agreement even between men, involved the shedding of blood. And here's the Father and the Son they have entered into a covenant. And the son was to come and offer himself a willing, voluntary sacrifice unto death. To glorify the father, to appease his wrath, to, to, to satisfy his justice and his holiness. And the son did that willingly and voluntary. And it involved the shedding of his blood. Christ shed his own precious blood. There's a public element. This was in the way into Jerusalem. This was outside the city gate. This was one of the main routes into the city. This wasn't private. This was in public for all to see. But this man, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And I close this morning. There's a practical element. The place of the curse. Why did Christ become a curse for us? Why did he die the worst death of all? Could I tell you this morning so you can thank God for him? Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. He, he was born for you. He, he lived for you. He, he, he died for you. He, he calls to you this morning to repent and believe in him. So that you can think of him. So this mindset of self-sacrifice and self-denial and this humility you, you can you can begin to emulate some of this so that you and I can trust him so that you and I can talk and tell of him I close with this illustration C.T. Studd in the 19th century was a great cricketer and he inherited his father's millions he'd probably been a multi-millionaire if he had been around today he was converted and after he was converted, this was his motto. This was what he, he lived by. 
And it was this. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, is he God in the flesh? Did he die for me? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Then listen to this. No sacrifice can be too great to, for me to make for him. Because any sacrifice we make peels into insignificance in light of these various elements that flow from his death. You see, his death was like no other because his death involved a theological element, a circumstantial, a prophetical, a covenantal, a public, but as well as a practical element. There, there was a purpose to this because he was dying to save sinners. May the Lord take these few thoughts this morning and bless them to your heart. And if he died to save sinners, then ask yourself, am I saved this morning? Am I one of Christ? Did Christ bleed and die for me?